I want to tell you about a podcast you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Urtube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. As a parent myself of a child who's had an IEP since kindergarten and he's now a 10th grader, I know how confusing, overwhelming, frustrating, sometimes daunting the whole process can be. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 Plans. And what I love about it is how easily Juliana explains everything. She answers common questions that probably every parent or caregiver has. She dispels myths and is concise and to the point. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. And there's a direct link in the show notes if you need it. People pretend they don't see emotional labor, but when emotional labor ceases to be done, they're up in arms that it's not being done. So if you're on the phone to a customer care representative who is extremely rude and doesn't care about your problem, you're going to be really, really annoyed and say that that person is not doing their job. That's emotional labor. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 554 with guest Rose Hackman. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insights to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm excited because today's episode is the one I was talking about, was it last week that Big Prize Energy came out? I believe that it was, or maybe it was the week before. But I mentioned in that episode that it was inspired by a conversation I had with a journalist, and it was this lady. So I cannot wait for you to hear this chat that I have with her, all the questions I have for her around her book called Emotional Labor. I don't think that there's any of you who are who are going to be like, yeah, this isn't for me. This isn't anything that I can relate to. It's definitely, I felt something that you would all really be interested in and enjoy hearing. So we're going to get on with that in just one second. But before we do that, one quick announcement. I have some coaching spots open for some of you who feel like you might need support, feel like you might need a cheerleader, a mentor, a guide, a coach, aka Andrea Owen, yours truly, me, and those links are, <laughs> that's just me trying to find an interesting way to talk about it. Uh, you would think I, I would have like a, a formal sales script in front of me. I do not. I'm just trying to tell you how, how jazzed I am about working with some new people. The link is over at andreaowen.com slash links. That's where you can find a plethora of interesting things that you might need. But the coaching page is there. You can read more about it, see if it's for you, and fill out an application, andreaowen.com slash links. All right, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. 
Rose Hackman is a British journalist based in Detroit. Her work on gender, race, labor, policing, housing, and the environment, published in The Guardian, has brought international attention to overlooked American policy issues, historically entrenched injustices, and complicated social issues. Emotional Labor is her first book. And without further ado, here is Rose. Rose, thank you so much for being here. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to talk about this topic. It, it's not the very first time I've had people on. I'm trying to think in my head. I had Laura Danger on. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. Uh, about a year ago, I'll I'll put that in the show notes for those of you that missed it around emotional labor, especially in in the home uh, that she talked about. And but it's the first time I've had a journalist on. You know, someone who's who's been out in the trenches doing the doing the real research and looking at the data. And so the book is emotional labor: the invisible work shaping our lives and how to claim our power. And I was looking at the reviews, and I I love what this one person said. And this is where I want to start. This person said, emotional labor validates, teaches, and gives language to what many of us have been experiencing. And one of the things that I love is when kind of the light bulb goes on for people of like that. I was in a college course when I realized that misogyny was a thing I'd been fucking pissed off about for like my whole adult life. So I know that feeling. And so can we start, let's start from the very beginning, like 101, what can you describe like different scenarios of what emotional labor is and looks like? Right. So I'll give you the sort of formal definition and I'll try and put this into context for you. So emotional labor is the editing work of emotions a person will do on themselves in order to have an effect on the emotions of other people. It's a smile that you will give to the people around you, regardless of whether you're feeling good inside in order to make them feel good inside. In our society, this is a form of work that is highly devalued, is often rendered invisible, highly feminized, sometimes racialized. And yet why argue in the book and why I deeply believe it's one of the most essential forms of work that exists because it's the kind of work that forges and reforges community, the kind of work that forges and reforges family. So that is the kind of, elevator pitch of what emotional labor is it's kind of everywhere in our day-to-day lives effectively it's you know if you think about teachers a hundred percent teaching is not just oh I'm a math teacher I'm going to tell you how to do two plus two equals four it's also managing the emotions inside of a classroom managing the maybe dysregulated feelings of a child while also managing the rest of the children it's basically the work of emotions day to day that we all put into whether it's you know the workplace, the home, even the street. Mm-hmm. I could go on for ages, but I'll stop there for now. I, I'm sure that my listeners are resonating with you know not all of them are are parents, but many of them are, and you know all of them work, and many of them work in some mm-hmm. kind of workplace slash office. Uh, school organization where that is probably where they see it the most is just sort of like holding, holding this thing in the background constantly of like reading a room, right? making sure that you're safe. I think for women, especially, which, which brings me to my next question. Like, can, can you talk about how gender race and class unequally shape the load that we carry? Right. So maybe I should start by going slightly deeper into the way in which 
under this current form of patriarchy, we have stereotyped women as being the emotional ones. And what's that? That's false, by the way. We're not actually the emotional ones. Thank you. We are perfectly able to be rational as much as men are. In fact, I argue slightly more because if you're good at emotion regulation, you're actually really good at having kind of regulated thought. But back to why we cast women as emotional, and that means that we we put the burden of emotional labor onto them. So within a family context, the idea that women should do more emotional labor is fundamentally the idea that women are in charge of communal well-being. And that can, you know, look like very straightforward emotional labor, a woman within a family context acting like a therapist to her significant other, to her children, maybe even to her elderly parents. But it also can mean all of the consequential duties, tasks, activities that come with making sure everyone's all right. So not just, you know, cooking is domestic labor, but if you're cooking with the thought of what does my husband like? What does my spouse like? What do, what are my children, what are they allergic to? You know, you're, you're doing all of that thoughtfulness that's about taking care of your children. And that actually means that it's also emotional labor. So if you think of that in the broader context of the world, We've just decided that women, by virtue of being women, are altruistic. You decide that women are altruistic. And what does that mean, going back to the emotional component, supposedly emotional component of women? It means that instead of seeing the work that we're putting into our families, the work that we're putting into our communities, and the work that we're putting into our workplace, we just say, oh, women are just altruistic. We're not, you're not actually working, you're not doing anything. What sociologists have found, what academics have found, and what I've try and really really illustrate in the book is emotional labor is not women at rest emotional labor takes time effort and skill to be performed it's just as arduous as a form of work in terms of time effort and skill as other forms of work like intellectual labor physical labor or creative labor so we cast we think emotional labor is highly feminine but actually when you step back what you figure out what you see is that because there's no inherent natural ability that women have of being emotional that's any you know more inherent than men have of being emotional men is are just as relational they rely on connection to, to other human beings just as much as we rely on connection to, to other human beings when you step back you realize that actually who does emotional labor in any given situation is about power not gender um, I'm I'm really throwing all the theory at you, and I hope that's oh, that's okay. I like, I love <laughs> loving the direction this is going. As soon as you said power, I was like, oh, the, here comes the good stuff. <laughs> Part of thinking of emotional labor is not just who's who do we think of as emotional and who do we think of as less emotional. It's really whose experience have we decided in this patriarchy, in this white supremacist patriarchy, whose experience have we decided should be centered. Mm-hmm. And whose experience is going to be decentered, and who do we think has to work for the experience of the people at the center? And once you understand that, that's where you understand that emotional labor is about power, not gender. Because people who are decentered, in the gendered case, women, are constantly put to work for the experience and emotions of men who are thoroughly centered, obviously, in this society. But if you think of it within a race white supremacy context very often you talk to black people in america which is where we both are in spite of my british accent and black people will say that when they are in a white space they are constantly expected to do emotional labor for the white people in that Mm -hmm. space 
you know, from a class perspective, you're going to have the same thing. Someone who's going to feel not as, you know, socially elevated as other people are going to, is going to be expected to cater to the experiences and, and um, expectations of the people who are centered in the group. So that's the kind of theory of, of power. And this is actually, you know, thoroughly backed up by research that I can go into if you want me to. As you're saying all of that, I'm picturing scenarios that my listeners might be in. And mm. for example, and this is purely hypothetical, uh, if someone is maybe going through a divorce and the man doesn't have good emotional regulation and never really had. And then what happens typically when someone goes through a divorce, I'm not saying this is mine story, it's <laughs> hypothetical. When people go through a divorce, I think regardless of of gender, the the struggles that they have emotionally and in all cases tend to sort of get exacerbated when you're in conflict, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like, and if depending on how you handle conflict, that's going to matter in difficult situations like a splitting of a relationship. So when the person who does not have good emotional regulation is uh, having a hard time, their experience is centered, even though other people in the family might have a lot better emotional regulation and they're the ones taking care of the person who's dysregulated. 100%. One of the things that's the most infuriating to me about thinking about these sets of issues, especially from a gendered private perspective, is the fact that we, when we cast women as quote unquote emotional, mm-hmm. it's actually a disparaging description within our current society. We're saying basically women are quote unquote hysterical, hormonal, all of these things as if we are the ones who are emotionally dysregulated. Actually, we're not. From a really young age, girls are taught to regulate their emotions. We are not allowed to have tempers the way that boys are. Mm-hmm. You know, we are, we are very firmly taught to contain our emotions and to orient our emotional output towards making other people feel good towards doing emotional labor. Boys are not taught that. Right. You know, of course, to be empathetic, boys have a different struggle, which is they're put into a very, very narrow man box where they're taught they shouldn't have all of these feelings. Mm -hmm. And the only acceptable feelings effectively are stoicism and anger. But really, the problem with that is you're not teaching boys to, it's not just to regulate their emotions, but to develop emotion literacy. You're That's not the term I use. <laughs> right, right. You're not teaching these boys to do that. And so as adults, they don't have emotion literacy. They also, because of, because of the idea that being, you know, having, being emotionally intelligent, having emotional literacy is not a positive thing for a man, they don't actually bother to do it, which means that you then very often end up in situations of really bad tempers. And tempers are not inherently male, but the way in which we're enabling one gender to basically not hold themselves accountable for their own emotions means that there are a lot of men with bad tempers, which as exactly as you say, means that you're creating a situation where the people around those men are having to figure out how to manage not just themselves, but the men in their lives. You know, that's it's exhausting. It's time consuming. And I think that it's really important as much as we can have empathy for, you know, people who are going through a lot of emotion, 
people who are allowing themselves to go through those kinds of emotional outbursts, that is a huge form of emotion, emotional entitlement. You know, you are centering yourself when you are deciding that your temper is this, you know, you don't care about regulating it for, for other people and your temper is what's going to, you know, matter. You're effectively saying to everyone else, your experience has to be about me, not you. It's exhausting. I think a lot of us are exhausted. It's exhausting. <laughs> I, I, we need to take an ad break, but when we get back, I want to continue this part of the conversation, especially as it relates to what's happening post-pandemic in a lot of relationships. We'll be right back. There's definitely been times in my life where my paycheck ran out before I got paid again, and I wish I could have accessed my next paycheck a few days before I was due to get it. Well, what if I told you that can happen with Earnin? Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. You can use Earnin for anything you need to, therapy visits, rent, or even extra self-help books. Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability and security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in noise under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show. Noise under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash noise, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash noise to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash noise. Okay, before the break, we were talking about this and, and we're talking, I think, I, I want to point out we're generalizing in terms of a lot of heterosexual relationships. And the reason I want to ask one more question about it is because I have seen a lot of my listeners complain about this and ask for for help around this. And I, I'm curious regarding your opinion, and maybe there's some some research that that is at least indirectly related to what they're calling now the great divorce. Have you heard the term now that we're post-pandemic? A lot of, especially uh, Gen X and millennial women who've been in long-term relationships, heterosexual relationships are walking away and kind of understanding, seeing this kind of research and conversation and understanding what's been happening in their lives. Do you think, so is, do you think that the emotional labor is a big part of that? It's a huge part of that. 
you know, I spent basically almost eight years researching and writing this book. And it's packed with hundreds of interviews that are not just women in private or people in private, but also people in the workforce and out and about, because obviously emotional labor affects people across all spheres. But what's been interesting about this phase since the book's come out, which has been what, almost six months, five and a half months, um, putting myself on social media mm-hmm. and talking, for example, to people on TikTok about emotional labor. The best thing about social media, of course, is the comment sections. Sure. And so whereas I have... Best and worst. Under- <laughs> I mean, yes, absolutely <laughs> dreadful, but but kind of, but you know, forget about the dreadful people telling me that I, I'm not even going to tell you what they tell me. Regardless, you know, it's not just hundreds of women suddenly, it's thousands sharing their stories and sharing the most horrific stories. You know, to go back to what you're talking about in terms of Gen X millennial women, I think, you know, I'm 37. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up, my mum did not go to university. She was, you know, her brothers did. She was told women don't go to university. By the time my sisters and I were born in the 80s, it was definitely expected that we were going to have the same opportunities as men. So I grew up in this supposed post-feminist world where I thought I was going to be able to do whatever I wanted and the world was my oyster. And I was you know, I always thought of myself as a feminist from a very young age because I was very into sports and that gave me a taste for inequality right there or distaste. But I did not expect the level of vitriol that I was still going to, my generation of women was still going to have to face, not just in the workplace, but also in, in private spheres. The level of sexism and misogyny, not just on the street, but also within intimate spheres where again to go back to what I was talking about where our exp- my experience as a woman was very clearly thoroughly decentered I was obviously still expected to be catering to the needs and desires and experience of the man in the relationship and I think that's a huge dissonance for our generation because actually that's that's not what we expected we don't think that's what we deserve mm-hmm. and we may be willing to put in actually a lot of us quite a lot of work but there is going to be a limit to how much work we're going to put into let's say you know coaching someone beyond whatever whatever they need to go to I got divorced in my mid-20s it was a very rude awakening I did not expect to still be treated very honestly as a second-class citizen within my own marriage I was and I got out and I think that a lot of women you know, have reached breaking point. I think obviously the pandemic really, really, really brought out Mm -hmm. so many double standards, so many double standards in terms of who's expected to make the sacrifice for the group, including in dual income households. You know, increasingly people who are in heterosexual marriages are dual income households. And that doesn't necessarily, we're seeing, make a difference when it comes to, you know, who's expected to stay home with the kids if it is remote learning, who's expected to go part-time when you can't really afford full childcare, 
that's still overwhelmingly women. And that's, that isn't the statistics. I, I feel torn, uh, you know, watching so many people talk about this, especially on TikTok. And on one hand, I'm fist pumping, like I'm so excited that the people our age are, we're waking up and, and but the, and at the same time, there's still so much work to be done, which, which brings me to where I'd love to shift the conversation because, you know, we could sit here all day and talk about the problem and, and sit in our little, uh, women's circles and, 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 and I don't want to call it complaining. It's just, it's talking about the problem, but if we look at the long game, I, I want to, before we talk about the solution, which we'll get to, but I want to ask, like, if we're, if we're looking at the long game, what, what is so important that, that it gets addressed, if not fixed? Like what's, what, what could be the repercussions? The most exciting part of the book for me was speaking to neuroscientists and psychologists who reassured me, I think something that, on the thing that I think a lot of us know, which is what I said earlier, which is all human beings are relational. We all rely on connection to one another in order to survive. We all perceive the world primarily through our five senses that then trans. So we receive the world through our five senses. That then transforms into something that neuroscientists call, call affect, mm. which is, you know, good, bad, hot, cold, danger, safety. And then that in turn transform in, transforms into an emotion. And then that emotion transforms into rational thought. To understand this is to understand that there is no such thing as a non-emotional human being. There's, there's someone who, who's unable to necessarily to maybe talk about what's happening in the same way as someone else is able to talk about something but everyone is emotional. So obviously that includes men. So the first bit is emotional labor, the way in which some of us put ourselves and our emotions to work for the emotions of other people is something that everyone can do. Everyone has the skill set to do it. Research on empathy shows that everyone has, we all have the same ability to empathize given the right motivation. It just so happens that we currently live in a society that motivates women into performing empathy into doing emotional labor with the fear of backlash if women mm -hmm. aren't smiling on the street they're going to be told you know smile maybe in a, in a slightly threatening way if they're not seen as empathetic and kind at work they're going to not get that promotion this is also shown through research women in the workplace are expected to be confident and competent just as much as their male peers, but they also have to provide an added layer, an added shift of emotional labor. They have to be other oriented and sweet and demure in order to reassure the people around them. So this kind of output that is currently highly gendered needn't be highly gendered. And the really exciting part is that this is not just the path potentially for better intimate, inter intimate relationships, by which I mean, it's, this is basically saying, men in relationships given the opportunity to grow and the space to grow and if they have the will to grow to you know paraphrase bell hooks are perfectly able to grow and to do emotional labor they there's nothing inherent that says men have to center themselves emotionally that's really really positive for me and i think we're already seeing a shift outside of intimate settings in professional settings mm -hmm. because so-called hard skills I actually have a op-ed on this in the Washington Post that came up today. So-called hard skills, you know, like accounting and being a doctor 
and you know, being a lawyer, these are increasingly going to be automated. And we're seeing that just in the last year with ChatGPT, everyone's suddenly gone crazy and thinking, oh my gosh, yes, automation was never just coming for physical labor. It was also coming for intellectual labor. The one thing you cannot automate because we rely on it to survive is emotional labor, is the mm-hmm. connection between human beings. And I think that we're going to start, I hope we're going to start to see proper shifts in terms of what is valued, not just in the workplace, but also in private spheres. And those are these feminine skills that, you know, we may have had this gender revolution, this women's rights um, liberation movement. But sadly, what didn't follow was a movement to finally value and see and highlight feminine traits and attributes that I think are just so essential to the way in which the world goes around. And I don't just think it, I see it in the numbers when I see, you know, what the future of work looks like, for instance. You know, we can, we can definitely, you know, we can scream in frustration. And I think that's important, as you say, because we're diagnosing a problem. But there are very clear solutions. And part of the clear solutions is kind of normative change, sadly, in terms of, and I say sadly because normative change is like basically a t- radical change in the way in which we place value in the world. But I actually think that's incredibly exciting. Yeah. And I, and, and not to, you know, bash on talking about the problem. I do think that for any movement to have any real traction, you have to get to a place where you're emotional, you know, not to use the term, but emotional enough to, to be angry or frustrated and loud and, and, and have these conversations. And I just, I want to say one more thing about just to circle back for just a second about, you know, these heterosexual relationships where, where women are, are sort of, you can call it an awakening, or I don't have a better word for it, and walking away or drawing very strict boundaries in their relationships. And mm-hmm. and I, I also want to say that that sometimes, like you said, like it's a skill set that everyone can learn. People do change. People people do change. People learn these skills. I've I've seen it before. So I don't want anyone listening to this to think like, oh my gosh, my relationship is doomed. Um, not necessarily. Like you said, the, the person has to have the right motivation. I think what's what's happening, and and this has been a statistic that I've heard for a long, long time. You know, the, the Gottman Institute has talked about this, is that on average, research shows that in a heterosexual long-term relationship, but usually a marriage, on average, a woman has, before she actually decides to leave or files for divorce, she has been wanting to leave for six years. Wow. Six years is the average. So by the time she actually takes the action, she's been emotionally divorced, you know, using air quotes for about six years. And a lot of times the men are say that they're blindsided. Like they didn't realize how serious it was. And, and I think that you get to a point where you realize that, yes, your love is conditional. You have run out of patience. You've run out of compassion. You've run out of trying to teach this person. You're just done. Like <laughs> the well isn't endless. A hundred percent. And, you know, to go back to how much we should talk about diagnosing the problem versus solutions. And obviously, I think both of us agree that there should be a happy medium. You know, I cannot emphasize enough how serious this problem is. Mm-hmm. And I think what's been interesting the last few months as I've been talking to the world about emotional labor is, you know, a lot of people still see this as a kind of a petty little silly concern that is, you know, privileged women. It's not a, just a privileged women problem. It's a problem across the board. You know, talk to women across classes, um, across, 
demographics, across geographies. This is a very, very, very familiar problem. To, I spoke to single mothers in Mississippi, you know, posh women on the Upper East Side in New York, Midwesterners here in Michigan. This is an incredibly serious problem. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when you, obviously that's maybe not, this is maybe not our um, our political leaning specifically, but, you know, for all the railing of, of um, conservative men talking about, you know, the demise of marriage, it's like if you actually care about the institution of marriage, mm-hmm. you need to start thinking about how, or you need to start addressing the way in which people are showing up in marriage. And very clearly, our cultural scripts are profoundly unequal. You know, definitely not all men. But men do expect to enter a heterosexual relationship and be served in a lot of different ways that is clearly no longer okay with a lot of women. And I I do think a lot of, you know, because we are trained into performing altruism constantly, that's not to say that we're showing up and we're saying, uh, you know, a relationship should be something, I should just get something out of this and what's in it for me. I don't think, I think very few of us are showing up in, in straight heterosexual, you know, romantic relationships in that way. But it just, the current inequality, especially inequality of experience, which might sound very wishy-washy, but actually is very tangible when you look at who gets their hour of leisure time and who doesn't. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I just don't think it's sustainable anymore. I don't think it's sustainable in a modern society where everyone's working. It doesn't make any sense either. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel fair. It doesn't feel like a fair, positive, respectful partnership that is focused on mutual support and mutual growth. And that's the kind of relationship that I think a lot of us are hoping for and not necessarily always getting. I mean, I'm in a positive relationship now. So I don't want people to think that I'm advocating for for celibacy, but I certainly think that when you look at the statistics very clearly, people who are in happy marriages are the happiest, but people who are in unhappy marriages are distinctly less happy than people who are single. Being single is totally fine, whatever society tells you. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're gonna take we're gonna take one more ad break and we come back then. We're gonna talk about the solution, I promise. <laughs> I've taken several classes with Masterclass on things like communication, entrepreneurship, and storytelling, and absolutely loved everyone because of their caliber of instructors and how concise the classes are. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. You can make new habits with New York Times bestselling author James Clear, improve your physical and mental well-being with leading gut health experts, or build stronger relationships with renowned psychotherapist Esther Perel. She is so amazing. I had gotten curious about how to be a better communicator, so I took the Art of Negotiation class with Chris Voss, and it helped me to do things like read body language, read speech patterns, and so much more, so I can better communicate with who you ask? My teenagers. (laughs) Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Andrea. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Andrea. Masterclass.com slash Andrea. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence 
whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. All right. So what are some strategies for for leveling the imbalances um, in our relationships, in our social circles, in our households, in our even in our jobs? I know that was a whopper of a question. So take it wherever you want. <laughs> um, I mean, in some ways, it's very simple. In other ways, it's not because it requires work. Um, the first thing that we need to do is we need to recognize emotional labor is real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, emotional labor is not an opinion. It's the fruit of many, many, many pieces of academic research. Emotional labor is the most recognizable in our economy when you think about, you know, service sector jobs, a waitress who's going to say to you, hello, how are you? You know, I hope you're doing wonderfully, like, very well, whatever that waitress is doing emotional labor, you're going to tip her or him according to how good emotional labor your, let's say, service is gender neutral. Mm -hmm. Your server was. A nursing assistant is going to be deemed good at their job. I mean, here I can say her, nine out of 10 nursing assistants are women. The degree to which they were kind and thoughtful and, and made you feel cared for, like those people are doing good jobs when they're doing emotional labor. We know it's real because it's the center of millions upon millions of jobs in our economy. So back to the private sphere, it needs to be recognized as real. Then when someone is doing it, it needs to be seen. Yeah. You can't, you know, I think the huge problem with emotional labor is it gets dismissed. If someone is chronically putting their time to work, but your experience, it, that needs to be recognized. And then there needs to be some form of understanding that there can't just be one taker and one giver. There has to be some kind of equilibrium. And I think that it's totally fair to, to say or to think that in a family context, one person might do more of one type of task and the other person might do more of another type of task. But those conversations need to be open you can never you can never be dismissive of it. I mean, I think there are lots of strategies at the fair play. Obviously, technique is one that a lot of people really, you know, love to to use. For I'm gonna stop you. For people that don't know what fair play is, it's a a, a book originally that was written that comes with a card deck. Laura Danger mentioned it on the show. Yes. We'll put those links in the in the show notes, but please continue. Definitely. But yes, so so I think that's the that's the kind of crux of it. You need to see it, you need to value it. And you need to ideally share it. You know, in an ideal world, 
we we would live in a system of open-ended reciprocity, mm-hmm. open-ended mutuality, where it's not a tit for tat, but it's I trust that you have my back and that you're not just going to take. And so therefore I'm going to be giving and being preemptively thoughtful and really taking charge of not just my own. Um, I'm not going to just take responsibility for my own emotional self. I'm going to understand I'm part of an emotional network. And then the other person ideally does exactly the same thing. Now in work settings, you know, pink collar jobs, which is all of the service industry jobs, some of them we just, we've already gone through like teaching and, you know, healthcare industry that's not doctors. So nursing, nurses, assistants, home uh, health aides, servers in the bar and restaurant industries. Because those are not the jobs that are going to disappear, I think we need to reconsider all of the salaries that are, you know, $20,000 a year. When I was in Mississippi and I met people who were working one, two jobs and making, you know, between twenty and $25,000 a year, that's, that's, not, that's not a proper wage, especially when you're doing the essential work that all of us rely on. There is a huge multi-trillion care crisis coming, dollar care crisis coming in this country. And, and I think like from a policy perspective, a lot has to, has to change to actually be realistic and accommodate that. I do also think in white collar settings, we only really capture emotional labor when it's at the very top. We only really see, we we laud clever leaders for being quote unquote, emotionally intelligent. Mm -hmm. And emotional labor is happening every single level of the hierarchy in white collar settings. And actually it's overwhelmingly being done by women and minority workers. So emotional labor, just as it needs to be seen and recognized and valued in private, the same thing needs to happen in in professional settings. There's a huge amount of research already available so that human resources departments can start recognizing that kind of work and and match it up with not just visibility, but recognition status, pay raises. This is all part of a normative change that has to happen because as things currently stand, we just, we just, it's not just that we don't see it. We, we dismiss it as irrelevant. That's my next question is what are some tools or rebuttals when someone feels, you know, for lack of a better word, gaslit into thinking that the work that they're doing is not real? Um, whether, whether these are rebuttals for in the home and their relationships or, or at work. So I think the best way to answer that kind of pushback is to basically invite the person who is telling you, oh, emotional labor isn't real, is to invite that person to think of a world in which emotional labor was not being done. So people pretend they don't see emotional labor, but when emotional labor ceases to be done, they're up in arms that it's not being done. So if you're on the phone to a customer care representative who is extremely rude and doesn't care about your problem, Mm -hmm. you're going to be really, really annoyed and say that that person is not doing their job. That's emotional labor. If you have a home health aide for your grandfather who comes in and acts completely uninterested, you know, very dismissive, very cold with your grandfather, you're also going to be up in arms that this person is not taking proper care of your beloved family member. You know, if you are privileged enough to be able to afford a nanny or a nanny share, if that nanny is not being warm and sweet and patient with your child, you're going to, again, be telling the nanny that they're not doing a good job. If your server 
doesn't really ask you how you are, doesn't really say anything except for taking your order and delivering the food, you're probably going to think that server did a poor job and not mm. tip them properly. That's because they withheld emotional labor. I could go on and on and on. You know, in a family, if someone, if a mother does not act endlessly, extraordinarily patient, does not think about people's dislikes and likes, does not plan, you know, what a nice way to spend a weekend could be for the family, regardless of her budget. If if a mother is not doing that, we're probably going to be slightly critical of that mother. Or label her as abusive. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So so it's that pushback that I certainly, you know, got, especially when I first started researching this topic, is just people who say that I feel like I find that they're often operating very much much in bad faith. You know, they're, they're just refusing to see it because I think once you do start to acknowledge and see it, it's just very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. You know, once you start to see how much emotional labor is going on and how much it's offloaded onto specific groups and not done by other groups, suddenly you can't really deny that there is this huge inequality that somehow has survived. I uh, imagine it's sort of like, People just think it's air, like it's here, and of course it's here. Just take take for granted the fact that it's there. It, when you were giving those examples, it made me think of scenarios that people might have in their life where, you know, it, so for instance, if you work at a place where the HR department is really great, and they, mm-hmm. you know, that's emotional labor. Like if there's some kind of conflict, then they would probably you know, people would probably go to HR or like even in a, this might be a strange example, but even in a boxing match where there's a referee, like if there was no referee (laughs) or some kind of like mediator, moderator to help kind of organize things. And also, you know, talking about the, the family, if you're in a family dynamic, like who's the person who, if there's a conflict that is the one who, uh, you know, helps people calm down or kind of like, okay, you get to talk, you get to talk like that's emotionally, if that didn't exist, what would happen? Like things would eventually fall apart. And I, I think those are maybe the examples we need to look for. Just it, it's not that hard. it's not far reach, you know, like you swing it's, a cat, you're going to hit some emotional. <laughs> it's, it's really, really not. And in fact, we are, we're starting to see a lot of people talk about it almost, but not fully talk about it. So you know, the last year, there's been a lot of conversations about the loneliness epidemic and about, mm-hmm. you know, boys and men who are suffering hugely. They're suffering hugely because they are disconnected because they weren't given the tools right. of emotional labor that helps connect them to human beings and that helps, you know, sow those threads of connection. Emotional labor is not just a complaint that women have that we're doing too much of it. Emotional labor is also part of a solution for boys and men to feel reconnected, not just to a community, but to themselves. You know, emotions are just such vital parts of who we are as human beings. We cannot do without them. We cannot do without them as they tie us to one another. We don't survive without that. Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I Before I let you go, I want to ask you one it's kind of selfish question that that kind of circles back to what we were talking about before we ta- started talking about solution. And I I have not read this particular book, but I saw it on social media. Someone was quoting, and I love Gabor Mate's work, but this one is When the Body Says No. And the person was quoting research from that book where they looked at w- specifically women 
who were in heterosexual relationships where they commonly, as it happens, put everyone else's needs before their own, especially their partners, and ended up with an illness, typically cancer and autoimmune. And it stopped me in my tracks as someone who was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder uh, about a year or so ago. And did any of your research touch on on that about um, people who are really the bearers of emotional labor and the connection with physical illness? Yeah, I think that's almost like definitely a whole book in itself. Mm-hmm. I think one thing that I can say is that we have separated out, not just, we have falsely, I should say, separated out rationality from emotionality when actually the two go hand in hand. And I think exactly the same goes to the way in which we think of the body versus our emotions and our hearts and our brains. I think we need to start thinking of our wellness as a much more holistic thing, just as we need to start thinking of thoughts as not actually separate um, from emotions. So I think that's partly what you're getting at is, mm-hmm. you know, an impact that, that a difficult situation has on someone is very often going to be felt in the body. A hundred percent. That makes, that doesn't just make sense, you know, to many of us, it obviously we have experiences of it, as you say, I, I too have an autoimmune disease. Oh, and the, the definitely, <laughs> you know, the definitely is affected by my by my circumstances and my environment hugely. Mm-hmm. So. I have a feeling we are just barely scratching the surface of seeing the repercussions, the effects, the consequences of generations and generations and generations of typically women who have carried the emotional labor for all of those generations. Right, and. You know, to go back to your wish, quite rightly, to be, you know, positive and uh, result-oriented, not just complaining, I think another part of this research that I found incredibly positive and inspiring was the real tangible research-backed conclusion that the work that we have been doing and that our mothers and foremothers have been doing is just so incredibly valuable. I just cannot stress that enough. It is so beautiful to think Mm -hmm. of this quiet work that we've all been doing and that we've, you know, the traditions of which we've inherited that's actually been the secret to how humanity has evolved. You know, one of, towards the end of the book, I talk about this anecdote um, that is, has been told by a few different people of Margaret Mead, the early 20th century female anthropologist, who in a lecture hall invites her students to ponder what is the beginning of civilization? What is the moment that she sees as marking the beginning of this modern civilization? And she argues that it's not the wheel or a clay pot, that it is a healed femur. Because she argues that a healed femur is the sign of one human being putting their own immediate needs to the side, the care for someone whose femur is broken, someone who is sick. Mm-hmm. That to her was the sign of the beginning of this modern civilization. And I love that because it reminds us something that we are rarely reminded of, it feels like in today's world, which is that the secret of humankind's strength 
is actually the way in which we forge community, the way in which we pour into one another. The secret to humankind strength isn't the fact that we're dominant and aggressive. That's what every other, you know, lots of other animals do. We are able to forge community and care for each other. We do that emotional labor. And that is powerful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this could be a three-hour conversation, but we do we do have to wrap up. Before we close, is there anything else that you want to circle back to that you want to make sure that you say before, you know, just so you can feel complete? Yes, you know what? I do. I, I had it in my back of my mind. I think one way of also measuring emotional labor that is very, very simple is to think of it in terms of time. So we all have 24 hours of the day to, to decide what we do with. And because emotional labor, like every other form of work, takes not just effort and skill, but time, I think one way of thinking about not just parity, but positive evolution is thinking of activities and measuring the value of activities very simply with time. I think that's very simple, but actually potentially uh, quite a transformative solution. And I wanted to highlight that. Oh my gosh, there's probably going to be an app for that eventually if there isn't. Oh my gosh. So the book is Emotional Labor, The Invisible Work Shaping Our Lives and How to Claim Our Power. All these links will be in the show notes. For people to find out more about you, do you want them to go, I mean, obviously the book, but follow you on social media or your website? Where do you want to send people? I am rose.hackman on TikTok and I am actually rose.hackwoman on Instagram. Perfect. We'll put the, the, both of those in the in the show notes. I follow you on both. Everyone, thank you so much for joining me and my guests. I'm so grateful for your time. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I would be so incredibly grateful if you haven't done so already, if you could leave a review of this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Super easy if you already listen to your shows over there. Um, But if you don't, or maybe you have the app on your phone, but you listen to the show on a different app, if you could leave a review for this show, it matters so much. I wish I could express how much it matters. I also wish that it didn't matter so much, but alas, it does. So if you haven't already, please go review and rate the show. It would mean so much to me. And thank you so much. I hope you have an amazing day. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.